Hey, how are you? Can you hear me okay? It's kind of windy where I'm... Okay, perfect. I was scared that it wouldn't work well. How are you all today? Hi, Frank. How are you? Hey, I, I'm fine. I just put some something in the oven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was testing uh, if, if you can hear me well because it's really windy where I am. But apparently it works out fine, so I'm glad. Hi everyone. Um, and the audience will start in around four minutes. So uh, thank you for coming. Uh, really looking forward to this room. Um, it will be really interesting. So thank you everyone. happy to be here um these these style of um rooms are amazing uh, most often people have to pay uh, good money to hear from these people and learn from these people so I, i'm just grateful and happy to be here and be able to learn Yeah, it's so generous of the speakers. I agreed to just come here for, you know, for free and uh, to just, you know, they just come here, take time to make this PowerPoint presentations for us and to just take the time for no pay. Like there's nothing they'll get out of it really um, because well, most speakers <laughs> that we invite already have a large media attention and they have already big grants and um, they really um, you know they most of them don't really need this but they do this just most of the time just because they think it's a good thing that we are doing here and they want to support this mission of you know science education for a broad audience and things like that so um, yeah it's it's really nice that they do this Yeah, that point of the education, uh, that, that was one of the points that I was thinking about. And still publicity. I, I think most scientists do work in, uh, in, in science because they are working towards a greater truth. And so we, uh, we as scientists, I, I think that this audience, you have a, uh, such a great audience here and the interactions and the discussions, I mean, it's interesting to, you know, uh, to go to such a, uh, such a medium, like a clubhouse, where you can, you know, just look at how do these things work. And I mean, uh, you can literally do this from, from everywhere. And when I came to clubhouse, I, I was thinking, this is like a 24 hour conference. And so if you're, if you're a scientist, you definitely have something going with, uh, with, uh, publicity and and uh, truth to be known uh, around so there is definitely some huge reward to a great audience yeah you're right uh, that's def definitely true Frank thank you for saying that and Olivier welcome Olivier is one of our guest speakers I invited you to speak uh, so if you accept the invite or if you click on your profile picture here on the room you can uh, you can come up here and, and speak with us. Um, if you click on the profile picture, there should be an invitation option 
uh, accept invite to speak. So if you would do this, uh, we can we can hear you uh, when you when you say something. Thank you, Olivia, for coming. It's like a French name. I I read Olivier, but probably I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm interested. Uh, I don't know if you can hear us or if you can read the, uh, the chat uh, there. I say that I invited you to speak. Um, let me... So if you, you, when I invite, like right now I'm inviting you, you should get the green bar on the top of your screen where it says accept uh, invitation to speak, something like that. And uh, then you should be able to join us on the stage. Thank you. The, the other way to do it, Olivier, would be to tap on your own profile. So if you just see the screen and you see the OG of your profile, you tap on that. And then down at the bottom of that, that pop-up screen that comes up there, there you could also tap accept invitation to speak. And then you would also appear on the stage with us. Hi, Jean-Marie. Um, how are you today? Hi, I'm good. I don't think you can hear yes. me. Yes, because I, I don't can. See the microphone. I can hear you. Oh, you can. Yeah. Okay, good. When you don't see the microphone, that's when I can hear you. Oh, and okay, your good. colleague arrived. Olivier is also here. Hi, Olivier. Nice. Uh, I hope I'm saying your name right. French is the, the major European language. I cannot. I'm really sorry about that. I had Latin in school instead of French. My parents fault. No, I, I had enough time to buy, buy now to learn it. So it's not my parents' fault anymore. <laughs> so all the way on the bottom right hand, um, there is a little microphone um, symbol. So if you press on that, you should be able to unmute yourself and then we can hear you. If it doesn't, oh, there you yeah, go. Yeah, no, it should work. Yes. yes. How Welcome are you? Hi, fine. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for coming, and so nice to meet you in, on Clubhouse. <laughs> we met yeah. through email. Now we edit the voice. <laughs> little by little, we get to know each other. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Thank you so much both for coming. Uh, it's such an honor. I posted um, the presentation on top of the room and I will right now add the, the, the bioarchive uh, paper in the chat so people can, can access that too. And if we are ready, we can start, if that's good. Yeah, I think, I think we can start. Let me open the, the slides on my on my laptop uh, and maybe we can give a few seconds for yeah 
um, I'll introduce people you. People to. But I'm um, sorry, but I don't have like too much information about Olivia. So how about this, Jean-Marie? I introduce you, and if you could say a few words to introduce Olivier, then and then Perfect. we start. Is that good? I'm sorry. Yeah, no <laughs> Perfect. Sounds good. <laughs> okay. Welcome everyone to the Science Society and of course a special welcome to our guest speakers here, uh, Jean-Marie and Olivier. And um, uh, let me introduce you first, uh, Jean-Marie, and then we'll go from there. He, okay. um, uh, Jean-Marie, um, he did, his, he went to the University uh, de la Réunion uh, for and he did his um, where he studied biology um, and then he did his masters at La Rochelle University um, and he did there um, studied in environment spaces and mar marine and uh, biology and, and ocean biology and um, then later he also uh, went and did his masters at the University the Antilles um, where he um, studied um, biodiversity um, um, ecosystems um, biology um, and there he also did his PhD in the physiology and biology of our organism uh, population interaction and um, he uh, now uses um, um, classic and cutting-edge imaging approaches in conjunction with sequencing technologies to investigate unusual life strategies and symbiotic interactions in uncultivated bacteria and small eukaryotes. So thank you so much for coming. I'm very, very honored to having you here. And thanks for introducing your colleague. <laughs> Sure, thanks. Thanks for the introduction. Um, so Olivier is uh, he's a full professor at the University of Antilles in uh, Guadeloupe um, in the Caribbean. He's a marine um, biology uh, scientist. He's um, he's done his PhD in in the at the University of Antilles. Uh, I think then he went for for a postdoc uh, in San Diego at the Scripps institute uh, for a little while before coming back uh, for a faculty position at the University of Antilles. And he's now um, the head of the marine biology lab uh, over there. And, uh, and he's leading a group. Uh, I'm not sure how many people are in your group, Olivier, anymore, but uh, probably uh, six, One, seven, at least. Uh, yeah, 10, with a student. 10, 10 uh, faculty uh, 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 assistant professor and and uh, and some PhD yeah. students and yeah so and and I did I should say I did my PhD in Olivier's lab actually um, at the University of uh, Guadeloupe uh, yeah so I don't know do you want to add something Olivier or I was not really preparing no, 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 anything no, no, no. to introduce yeah, you yeah, okay good yeah thank All you right. and um, usually our tradition is to first ask a couple of interview questions if that's okay with the two of you uh, we think kind of it's interesting for a broad audience to learn a little bit of um, how it is to become a scientist and our first question would be um, how did you choose the path of science 
Was it something from childhood on you always wanted to do? Was there some experience um, that like elicited or sparked that interest or some teacher, some book? Uh, we always think it's very interesting to learn from our guest speakers. Thank you. Olivier, do you want to answer that first? Oh, you can go first. Okay. All right. Um, well, in my case, um, to be completely honest, uh, the way I ended up studying biology in the first place is that I was I was living in in Guadeloupe, um, uh, which is a tropical island uh, in the Caribbean, and uh, and when I finished high school, and I you know I had no idea what I wanted to do, and um, I was very much into uh, diving and, and and snorkeling and looking at the you know the amazing. Um, coral reefs and, and all the small uh, invertebrates and, and colorful species that you can spot underwater in the Caribbean. Uh, and I didn't want to leave uh, uh, Guadeloupe, so I, I looked it up and I saw that biology was an option. You could study biology and marine biology at the university, uh, the local university. So that's how I picked uh, biology in the first place. And um, and then, uh, and you know, by studying it and, uh, and traveling around and, and diving and um, getting to know uh, a little bit more the, the marine environment uh, that became uh, uh, something I was really, really passionate about. And uh, yeah, so I, I guess uh, I, I, I got uh, into it by, uh, you know, being curious about the, the marine environment first. So that's, 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 uh, that's it for me. I don't know, Olivier, if you want to tell a little bit how you ended up becoming a scientist. Yeah, it's quite similar for me. I was born in Guadeloupe, so everywhere is in, uh, in contact with marine environment, like for surfing or something like that, snorkeling. So yeah, just after the high school also in the university, I did first uh, internship in a marine laboratory lab, just to have an experience in a lab. And I love it to play with invertebrates and, <laughs> and the research like that. So I decided to try to, to be a scientist too, yeah. But at the beginnings, it's just in contact with marine environment. So in, in my case, I can I can add maybe that there was uh, because you asked that specifically, there was not a, you know, a plan from the beginning on to become a scientist. It was uh, more something that uh, grew with with the years and uh, and it was really one step at a time, uh, you know, getting into this internship and then this project and uh, and discovering these uh, different techniques that that are used in 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 the lab to study uh, organisms. I when I joined Olivier's lab uh, first for an internship, um, and then later for the PhD, I received trainings uh, in microscopy, and that that was a big part, um, a, a very important step also because suddenly using um, light and electron microscope, uh, I, I I was able to. I really, you know, see what was inside of living organisms, inside of cells, and that that was so fascinating for me. So that it became very clear that I wanted to do that uh, more. So that's uh, yeah, that's how it, it it went. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's um, that's really interesting. You know, it's so interesting how the all the different scientists have like um, this different path but then in the end it's really driven by curiosity and like passion and curiosity that like absolutely um, yeah, yeah so it's always wonderful to hear that i think because then it's such a genuine thing to do 
And it's also so lucky, right? We are so lucky to be in working, happening to working in something that we actually are, you know, curious about. So, um, yeah, yeah, definitely. And how did this project came about? Like, is there maybe, like, how did you come and in going into, um, uh, into this field? Uh, or is there a story about this project? Maybe it was really hard to get the grant or, you know, is there, is there maybe some background story? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think Olivier could answer that. There, I, I think there was actually originally no grant, and I, <laughs> that's one of the reasons why uh, uh, it was a story that that built up slowly, right? Olivier, you wanna you wanna tell exactly, a little bit about exactly. uh, how yeah. it started? Yeah. So I, I did a PhD on uh, microbes and sulfoxidizing symbiosis in between bacteria and marine vertebrates. And after this PhD, when I came back in, the, in Guadeloupe after my postdoc in San Diego, I was working on mangrove and seagrass bed, still looking for symbiosis in vertebrate, invertebrate living with bacteria. And after that, I found some biological models with ectosymbionts and the invertebrate with ectosymbionts with uh, sulfur oxidizing ectosymbionts are usually white. So I am looking in the mangrove, I am looking for white specimens, like white filaments, white, some white things. And I found this white long filament attached to, to leaves of uh, mangrove trees, sunken leaves. So I collect them, I brought them back to the lab and I, I decided to, to look at them just by, by curiosity first. That I so long so that I believe it was something like fungi or I don't know, a big, larger protein, but not the bacteria for me, not the bacteria, it was too big to be a bacteria. So I, I look at them with a TM light microscope and I saw no nuclei, no mitochondria, nothing, no organelles usually present in eukaryotic cells. So I said, yeah, this is very strange. Maybe it's a prokaryote, but it's very strange. And it was not my first focus. I was working on symbiosis between bacteria and bivalves. So I just put this on the lab and say, okay, if I will time after, we'll have a look to this. And we, we work like this and I, maybe I spent five, five to six years before to work again on this white filament. And after that, we saw that it was, yeah, it was a bacteria. We, we spent again five to six years so it's not a long work on this bacteria. I found them the first. I found, I found the first pictures was taken were taken taken at in two thousand five. So it's a long, long story. <laughs> <laughs> but we really work hard with Jean Marie's these two last years on this model. Wow, that's interesting to learn. You know, it's so important. I think to learn. You know, we read the paper. And I think if you're not in the field, then you don't understand how much work there is behind this one paper and, you know, how much trouble and effort many times. So thank you for sharing that story with us. And yeah, now um, the stage is yours uh, to, um, to present um, this data and then um, it's it's your option if you want to ha if people can ask questions in between but most of the time we just wait until you know you you are done with the presentation but it's really your choice and thank you and the stage is yours 
All right. So I, I think um, the way we're going to do is I'm going to present uh, and uh, and we, I'm going to refer to some of the slides for those who have the possibility to look at the slides. Um, I would I wouldn't mind having questions uh, directly during that presentation. Uh, I'm also fine with uh, having Q&A at the end, so uh, totally up to you. But because I'm not completely sure of uh, of, of uh, who's listening and, and what is their background, uh, maybe it's okay to to have questions uh, at the same time. So if I'm too technical, or you know, then I can uh, adapt my speech. Or, or on the contrary, if uh, if it's uh, too shallow, then I can you know dive a little bit deeper. So uh, let's try to make it a little bit interactive. If, if that's okay. Yes, sure. Okay, thank you. All right. So. So how much time do you want me to present? 20, 20 30 minutes? Is that too much? Or no, do you want... it's fine. It's really up to you how long okay. you want to stay. Like, we are here okay. <laughs> okay. for you. All right. Okay, so, okay, so let's start. So if um, so, I'm going to try to give an overview of uh, the key uh, findings uh, from our study that are in this paper. Actually, on the slide number one, there's a link to the to the to the paper published uh, in Science two months ago. Uh, now, um, and before I dive into this, I would like to give some some introduction, some context. So, if you go to the slide number two, this is a uh, a recent representation of the tree of life, and and uh, and as you can see. Uh, all life uh, is in either of these three groups, uh, either bacteria, archaea, or, or eukaryotes, right? And they are color-coded, and you can see how diverse are each of the three groups. Now, just uh, forget about the tree and, and maybe picture yourself, uh, you know, going out there in nature and trying to assess uh, the, the, the extent of biodiversity around you just uh, using your naked eye without the, the, the aid of a microscope. If you look around, you're gonna see, you know, this amazing biodiversity of, of things like trees, bushes, uh, fungi, birds, mammals, reptiles, a lot of insects, maybe some fish. But all of these fascinating biodiversity, uh, when you look now at the tree of life again, this is all eukaryotic species. All of these macroscopic life forms on just uh, the the this blue branch, the small branch of the tree that is the eukaryotic uh, group, and and this is quite fascinating, right? Like this uh, small branch of the tree of life is actually uh, taking up all the microscopic space. So now, if you move to the slide number three, uh, another way to look at this is to uh, look at the the all the different sizes of uh, of living things and if you if you consider from the from the smallest ultra small bacteria which are just a fraction of a micron uh, on the left uh, of that scale of, the, of that uh, linear scale from the smallest ultra small bacteria to the largest uh, sequoia trees for instance that we have here in california there are 24 orders of magnitudes in terms of biovolumes that's a, that's a trillion times a trillion that's a, that's a very big range and along that range, uh, as you can see uh, on the slides three and, and, and four now, um, most of those life forms are uh, complex eukaryotic organisms. For some reason, the bacteria and archaea, they are restricted to microscopic sizes. 
And this sounds like a simple statement, but it's actually quite uh, puzzling for, for evolutionary biologists because eukaryotes, uh, macroscopic eukaryotes, they have emerged, they evolved from, uh, from archaea and, and bacteria to some extent through symbiosis. Um, so these complex macroscopic life form uh, evolved from simple microscopic life form only once in about 4 billion years of Earth's history, right? And this is very surprising because until today, all the key ingredients of complex macroscopic life are still present individually in, uh, in different, different species of bacteria and archaea, like cell differentiation, endosymbiosis, phagocytosis, compartmentalization, or even multicellularity. All of these individually exist in some bacterial species. Uh, but the jump to complex macroscopic life apparently happened only once uh, in the evolution of life. So what underlies the origin of biological complexity uh, is a very big question in biology that has not been answered yet. And another way to put this question is why are bacterial and archaeal cells remain essentially small and simple? So that is, uh, that is kind of the context of, of our uh, project. So if you move to slide five, uh, uh, I'm gonna now tell you a little bit about what we think limits the size of bacteria and archaea. There are a couple of things uh, that, uh, that have been uh, proposed and, uh, and lots of papers uh, about that. So there are three things I wanna talk about. First, uh, we think that bacteria and archaea are limited by the way they transport molecules. They, they lack uh, active transport, so they rely completely on something called chemical diffusion. It means that the, the, the molecules, the, all the ingredients uh, of life inside of bacteria and archaeal cells are just moving around randomly uh, and, and mixing by Brownian motion. And this is very efficient uh, for uh, small distances, you know, along uh, micrometers that works very fast and very uh, homogeneously. But as soon as you consider a larger cell, like uh, 10 micron, 100 microns or a millimeter, uh, then this type of transport is extremely inefficient. So we think that this is one of the main reasons why bacteria and archaea have to remain small. Back, uh, eukaryotes, however, have, uh, have developed uh, a more elaborate way of transporting and compartmentalizing their biochemical reactions. They can pack biomolecules into vesicles and transport them um, along microtubules uh, using motor proteins. So that was the first thing. Then the second limitation for bacteria and archaea uh, cell size is something called uh, the energetic cost of, uh, of genome complexity. So let me explain that a little bit. There's, a, there's on slide number six, there's a, a plot where you can visualize the, the genomes of viruses, archaea, bacteria, and eukaryotes that are um, plotted uh, uh, in terms of genome size and number of genes. But even if you cannot look at the slides, uh, the main idea is that simple organisms have small genomes with little uh, uh, genes in them, such as viruses. Then you have some intermediary complexity with bacteria and archaea. They have genomes that are about three, four, five megabases. They have a couple of uh, thousands of genes. And then more complex organisms like eukaryotes have much larger genomes with many more genes. So uh, higher complexity uh, requires more genes and larger genomes to accommodate those genes, right? 
and there's an energetic cost of having a larger genome and producing many more proteins from more genes because protein synthesis is actually 75% of the cell's energy budget. So being more complex, uh, a more complex cell supposedly has a much higher energy need. And energy is, is produced quite universally through the production of uh, a molecule called ATP, which is produced by a small molecular machine that is called ATP synthase. And ATP synthase uh, is, is um, restricted uh, to membranes. It's not floating freely in, inside of the cell. It has to be attached to a membrane. And for bacteria and archaea, it is, uh, it is um, proposed that uh, energy production by ATP synthase is mostly restricted to the cell membrane. So the surface area around the cell is the, the surface that produces the, the energy of the cell. And again, that is that is fine for small cells. Uh, if you consider uh, on slide seven, if you look at slide seven, if you consider a small two micron bacteria, uh, the surface area of membrane uh, is 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 uh, is large enough to sustain the energy need of the cell. But if you consider a much larger bacteria, let's say a hundred micron bacteria, the surface area to volume ratio drops about fifty times, and then suddenly there's not enough membrane. At, at least at some point, if you consider uh, larger bacteria, there is not enough membrane surface area available to produce all the energy that the cell is going to require. So that is the second limitation, a theoretical limitation uh, that is uh, proposed uh, for this, the, the limit on bacterial cell size. Uh, I'm going to skip slide eight and just go to the, the third limitation, which is something that was proposed in 2016 by Kempes and collaborators. It's called the ribosome catastrophe. It's a very interesting uh, model that was uh, published by, uh, by this group. They looked at all kinds of, uh, of model systems uh, of various sizes. And what they did is they built a model uh, where they try to predict uh, how much space is going to be taken up by the various components, you know, the ribosome, the DNA, the, the membrane, uh, the proteins, everything that's in a cell. How is this going to uh, uh, evolve when you consider either smaller or larger cells? And, uh, and I'm not going to go too much into detail, but what they came up with is a predicted maximum cell size above which the number of ribosomes that are needed for the cell to function is uh, is more than the available space that there is in the cell. So they call that the ribosome catastrophe, and uh, and that for them sets the upper limit of um, of uh, bacterial cell size. So there are some exceptions uh, uh, on slide ten. Uh, I'm I'm not going to spend time. Um, uh, describing them, but uh, there are some giant bacteria. They are exceptionally, exceptionally large bacteria in at least uh, four different groups. Uh, one of them is uh, Thiomargarida. They are already known giant bacteria in the Thiomargarida group, which is the same group where uh, our giant uh, Thiomargarida magnifica belongs. And if you go to the slide 11, uh, that will uh, give you some kind of overview of everything I've said. Um, there is a theoretical framework that predicts um, a possible range of 
cell size for bacteria, you know, the, with a lower bound and an upper bound. And, uh, and indeed, most bacteria that are studied in the lab, uh, uh, they are falling within that range. But there are uh, some exceptions that are challenging the, the upper bound of bacterial, size, bacterial cell size, sorry. And spoiler alert, the, 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 the giant Thaumagrida magnifica that Olivier uh, discovered in mangrove is actually two to three orders of magnitude above the, predicta the predicted upper bound of uh, bacterial cell size. So our hypothesis uh, was that these giant Thyromogreta magnifica bacteria, they may have a higher biological complexity that is, uh, that is not uh, taken into account in those models, uh, which allow it to break free from some of the biophysical and bioenergetics limitation uh, on cell size. So that, that was uh, uh, kind of the context, right? I'm gonna now go briefly over three, uh, four actually, four, um, uh, bullet points that we develop in the paper. I'm going to first tell you um, why we think that these giant uh, long filaments are, are single cells. Then we're going to talk about um, the fact that they are more complex because they have their DNA contained uh, in a new type of membrane-bound organelles. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the, the genome and then finally about the way these giant cells produce energy. So. Um, on slide 13 and 14, you have uh, two really nice pictures uh, provided by a colleague in Guadeloupe, Pierre-Yves Pascal. Uh, this is the sampling site. Uh, so on these pictures, you, you can recognize the, the mangle tree uh, and, uh, and at the top of the sediment, all the, 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 the decaying um, uh, organic matters that is uh, covered with uh, white sulfur bacteria that are feeding on the hydrogen sulfide that is diffusing from the sediment. So this is the environment where, where the Thyromograta magnifica cells grow. They are marine uh, filamentous uh, uh, bacteria. We cannot see uh, them on, on those pictures, but it gives you an idea of uh, where they grow. Uh, on slide 15, uh, however, you can see uh, how those giant bacteria look like. So they are uh, white filaments that are developing on uh, on uh, on a dead leaf. Uh, that's what you can see on the right. Uh, they can grow up to two centimeters, uh, but the average size is about one centimeter, uh, 9.72 millimeters to be precise. That's what you can see here on the left. They are about the size and the shape of an eyelash. Um, and the first observations uh, that were done uh, uh, immediately revealed that they were apparently not segmented. So they were uh, apparently composed of a single of a single cell. So a big big part of the of the paper is about uh, producing or showing convincing evidence that these filaments are indeed just giant single cells. So if you go on slide 16, 16, sorry, there's a there's a link to a YouTube video. I don't know if you can. I, I, I would also have a have a have a question here, Jean Marie. Sure, and, go ahead. Uh, and, and that is, are there any? Uh, I, I'm not biology is very far from me, so uh, this is a very naive question. But are there any um, uh, differences whether bacteria or what have you are growing in air or in water? Is there something to the medium? that is kind of relating to the to the possibilities of, of the sizes that you talked about that, that's something that i just uh, came up as a question for me 
Yeah, thanks. That's that's a good question. It's a it's a good question actually. There's a there is something specific about the environment uh, these bacteria live in. Indeed, so they 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 live. Uh, if you look again at slide fourteen, they live at the interface between a anoxic sulfidic sediment and uh, and and oxic water so they they position themselves exactly at this interface where there's a very steep chemical gradient between no oxygen and very high hydrogen sulfide from uh, the sediment and and no hydrogen sulfide and high oxygen from from up above uh, in the seawater and uh, and that makes it a very um uh, a very specific environment where there's a lot of free energy that's available to them because if you can harness the the um, the, the redox potential between this um, uh, reduced hydrogen sulfide and the oxygen from above, there's a lot of energy that's available for their metabolism. And free living bacteria, if you if you were referring to small uh, uh, microscopic bacteria that live freely in the water, uh, they have this challenge that if they want to exploit this this gradient, this chemical gradient, they need to be exactly at the right interface. Uh, but they are, you know, they are uh, washed away by by water currents or or, um, or waves or whatever you name it. Uh, while these giant bacteria, maybe, I mean, this is speculation here, we, we, we have not uh, studied that, we don't have data to support this, but there are papers that are um, saying that maybe giant bacteria in general, large sulfur bacteria in general, have this advantage that they can exploit better the chemical gradient between the sediment and the, and the seawater. So that, that could be one thing. Does that answer your question? Uh, oh, well, yeah, Th thank you so much. Uh, okay, continue. good. All right, so uh, going back to slide 16, if you if some of you uh, click clicked on the link for the YouTube video, you can you can see uh, a 3D animation of a 3D rendering of a single um, filament. So what we did basically is uh, Olivier uh, collected samples in uh, in mangrove. He fixed them with chemical fixation, uh, stained the membrane with some specific fixatives, and then he shipped them to me in California. And what I did is I I basically did a CT, a CT scan of these of these bacteria. We placed them in a, in an X-ray microscope and we looked at them uh, with uh, X-rays, pretty much like uh, medical X-rays, but uh, but a very specific type of X-ray microscope. And then we reconstructed the 3D uh, object uh, from these X-ray uh, two-dimensional projections, and we ended up seeing, like you can see on the video, that the filament is indeed a continuous tube that doesn't have uh, septation that would make, make it a multicellular filament. So that was the first technique that uh, really pointed to um, uh, the, the entire filament being a single cell. Then we used a second technique. That's what you have on slide uh, 17. There's also a link to another video if you want to click. But uh, I can also explain if you're not seeing the slides or the video. It's basically we used a membrane dye to stain the membranes. And we observed entire cells uh, with uh, confocal laser scanning microscopy. And we reconstructed these entire filament in 3D. And, uh, and again, we observed that the entire cell is made of uh, a, a single continuous cytoplasm with a single membrane that is continuous all along the filament. 
And finally, we used transmission electron microscopy, which uh, Olivier uh, had uh, done extensively already before I started to do, but we observed long longitudinal sections uh, and with electron microscopy, you have the possibility to zoom in uh, much more into the ultrastructure of the cell. And again, uh, we could not see any uh, membrane that would um, separate the filament into several cells. So we confirmed with three different techniques uh, that these filaments were indeed um, ginormous single bacterial cells. So that's uh, for the first uh, point. And if you go to slide 19, uh, there's uh, one of the... Uh, figure that's in the paper on the left uh, that shows you on a log scale where Thio Margarita Magnifica uh, is in terms of uh, in length. So here it's a, it's a length of cells or organisms and not biovolume. But you can see that uh, it is much bigger than, uh, than most bacteria. It's in the range of centimeters and not micrometers. It's actually larger than some complex multicellular organisms such as, uh, you know, uh, Seno uh, Rabitis elegans worms or Drosophila, which are uh, famous model systems. Uh, eukaryotic model systems. So that's for the first point. Then we looked into the, the inside of the cell and we, we uh, used again a variety of microscopic uh, investigations to try to understand what makes it uh, possible for these cells to be so big and, and uh, to sustain such a, a large complex uh, body structure. So we stain the membrane on, on cross sections of cells together with DNA, and that's what you have on slide 20. So you have um, a cross section of a cell, and, and we did uh, label the, the outer membrane uh, the, around the cell in, uh, in, in orange using a membrane dye called FM143X. But we also were surprised to see that uh, there were also membranes structures that have membranes inside of the cell, in the cytoplasm, uh, surrounding the, the large central vacuole. And inside of these uh, membrane-bound structures were also uh, labeled DNA. So that was a very big surprise because uh, uh, apparently in these bacteria, the, the DNA was contained in a membrane-bound structure that we can call an organelle, uh, which is something that is uh, not uh, typical for bacteria. It's actually a characteristic of, uh, of complex eukaryotic cells. But in bacteria and archaea, the DNA is, uh, is known to be always free-floating in the cytoplasm, if you will. So, uh, sorry, I don't know if I got disconnected or what. Uh, no, no, you're, you're completely fine. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. My phone did something funny. So then we, if you go to slide 21, we, we looked at uh, where are the ribosomes of the cells, and we used the technique called fluorescence in situ hybridization, which um, consists essentially um, uh, to, to, to apply a fluorescent dye to the ribosomes. And uh, as you can see on the image, the, the ribosomes of the cells were labeled um, with this fluorescent dye and, and they co-localized with the DNA uh, uh, in the pepins. So those, those uh, oh sorry, in the, in, the, in the organelles that contain the DNA. Uh, these, uh, these organelles that uh, by analogy with, uh, with the small seeds uh, in fruits such as kiwi or watermelon, we, we named them pepins. 
uh, after the French word pépin. And, uh, and these pepins, uh, pepin organelles, uh, they were present throughout the entire cell and they were containing not only the DNA, but also the ribosomes uh, of the cell. And, uh, and we confirmed with, uh, with transmission electron microscopy that they were also uh, surrounded by a membrane. So, um, so that's, that's for the second uh, main point uh, of the paper, that uh, not only these, uh, is, are these cells giants, they are also uh, displaying a higher level of complexity in, in the sense that they have compartmentalized their DNA and their ribosomes in, uh, into a, a new uh, type of organelles that we named pepins. And then at this point, we, uh, we, we asked uh, a question. Uh, we, we asked ourselves, uh, yes, okay, so these giant cells are, are centimeter long. That's crazy, that's, that's unheard of. But maybe, maybe these gigantic uh, cells are not really alive um, throughout the entire length of these filaments. Maybe it's just a, uh, some kind of dead or inactive stalk that is supporting the, the active growing tip of the, of the filament, and that would make a, a completely different story, right? So without going too much into detail, we, we used a technique called Boncat, <clears throat> where you incubate uh, the live cells uh, into uh, seawater and you and you provide them with a molecule which will be um, uh, taken up by the cell and integrated into uh, newly produced proteins and this molecule uh, once it's integrated into protein you can label with click chemistry you can label it in uh, fluorescent uh, color uh, here on slide 23 it's been labeled in uh, in green and what we saw at the end of this uh, Boncat experiment is that uh, the entire length of the centimeter long bacteria was active in terms of protein synthesis. So we were not in that scenario that, uh, that, we, uh, that we had a, a long inactive cell supporting a growing tip. We were really looking at a active, actively uh, synthesizing uh, giant microbe. Uh, that brings me to the next point, uh, which is um, uh, the, the polyploidy, uh, the, the, the genomic investigation. So if you go to slide 24, we uh, started to, <clears throat> to investigate how is um, uh, structured the genome of these cells, because in, in a regular bacteria, there's uh, usually one or maybe sometimes a few copies of the genome that is free floating in the DNA and, uh, and that is sustaining uh, the entire cell. But here, because of the size, uh, of course, you cannot imagine that a single uh, uh, genome copy could be uh, sustaining the entire uh, giant cell, right? So uh, like most like actually all large bacteria, uh, Thiomargarita magnifica is polyploid. It contains uh, many, many copies of the genomes that are uh, in this case containing pepins. We estimated the number of copies uh, to be for, for a fully two centimeter long cell, it could be up to 738,000 genome copies, which is a very big number for a single bacterial cell. And, uh, and then we sequenced the, the, that genome. We, uh, we managed uh, at the Joint Genome Institute, uh, which is a, a sequencing facility of the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, where I, I work. Um, we 
sequence five uh, draft genomes from five single cells. And what we what we found out is that uh, these these giant cells have a very interesting uh, genome that is uh, quite large. It is uh, about three times larger than most bacterial genomes. It also contains many more genes, about eleven thousand genes, uh, which is again three to four times uh, higher than most bacteria. What's even more interesting is that we found out that there's about 25% of the genome of these cells that is dedicated to secondary metabolism. That's uh, on slide 25, this uh, uh, BGC um, uh, colon, BGC stands for biosynthetic gene clusters. Those are the genes that are indicative of, uh, of um, uh, secondary metabolism, uh, such as producing uh, antimicrobial uh, molecules or, or uh, molecules that are involved in complex uh, pathways, uh, such as communication, um, uh, complex behavior, social behavior, that kind of stuff. So this was a very interesting finding as well. Then if you move to slide 26, um, I think that's going to be my last uh, uh, point about the genome, we also found out in by looking and analyzing the genome of Thyromorgata magnifica that it lacks uh, some of the essential genes for cell division. Uh, and, uh, and in contrast, it was having a, a full complement of genes for cell elongation with some of those cell elongation genes uh, that were actually present in, uh, in uh, multiple copies. Some of the elongation genes were duplicated. So on one hand, we have a, uh, a giant cell that, that does not divide like other bacteria uh, through binary fission, like most bacteria in archaea. Instead, it grows into a long, uh, centimeter-long filament, and indeed, it, it is missing some of the essential genes for classic binary fission cell division, and it has an extended complement of genes for cell elongation. So that was a very nice uh, bridge between the genome analysis and the, and the cell morphology uh, analysis. Okay, and now I'm going to switch to the last point, uh, which is how energy is produced in these giant cells. And, uh, and to go back a little bit, if you remember in the introduction, I, I told you how bacterial cells may be limited by the way they produce energy. Uh, if you look now on, tw on slide 27, um, there's a, a schematic representation of a small cell that is one micron radius. Uh, if you think of a larger cell that is a three micron radius, the, the radius increases three times, but the surface area of membrane that produces ATP increases nine times. And at the same time, the volume of the cell, which is essentially a proxy of the energy need of the cell, increases 27 times just because of the surface area to volume ratio, right? So you can see that uh, increasingly large cells have an issue that they are not increasing their surface area as fast as they are increasing their energy demand, right? So the question for these extremely big Thyromorgata magnifica cells, the question was, yeah, but how do they produce their ATP if, if ATP production is restricted to the cell membrane on the, on the surface of the cell? How do they uh, produce enough ATP to sustain such a large biovolume? 
So we label the ATP synthase to localize uh, bioenergetic membrane, to localize ATP production on cross-sections of cells. And instead of labeling the surface of the bacteria, we labeled the entire uh, complex network of membrane that was present intracellularly inside of the cytoplasm, including around the, the pepin organelles. So that was a very interesting uh, uh, observation uh, that supports uh, somehow the idea that to grow to larger sizes, you you need an expanded network of bioenergetic membranes. And, uh, and I think that's the last uh, uh, main point I wanted to tell you about uh, for the paper. There's a, a summary slide on slide 28 and very briefly uh, to sum up and conclude. So we, we show in this manuscript that uh, Thiomargarita magnifica are by far the largest bacterial cells uh, uh, ever observed, that they have a higher level of uh, compartmentalization because their DNA and ribosomes are compartmentalized into structures, organelles that are membrane bound, and we name them pepins. They have a large genome with more genes than average bacteria. They, they are missing some essential uh, genes for cell division, and they have uh, duplicated genes for cell elongations, and, uh, and they have this expanded network of uh, uh, ATP producing bioenergetic membranes. So all together, these giant cells uh, show a gain of complexity um, and, and somehow challenge the traditional concept of a bacterial cell. And we think that uh, investigating further the biology of, of Thiomargarita magnifica, uh, and in particular its energetic uh, energy metabolism and the precise role of the pepins may be um, uh, helping us in the future to better understand the origin and the evolution of biological complexity. And with this, I'm done. So uh, there's... Um, uh, I guess some time for question if uh, if there are question and we'll be happy to answer them. Thank you so much, Marie. This uh, was an amazing presentation and it's so interesting. Um, the question um, I have is um, like I have various questions, but I don't want to. You know, I will give the next question to somebody else. Um, so, does this change basically the origins of? Um, you know, of our cells that we have with the nucleus. Uh, because, you know, a lot of times I heard about the archaea and we had the guest speaker here previously, I think last week or the week before, I think two weeks ago, um, talking about his work with archaea from like the deep ocean and he works on these um, Asgard viruses and uh, the theory is that they kind of helped develop this nucleus that we have like do mm -hmm. those bacteria that you found do they also have these type of viruses in their environment or do you think that they could have developed it do they have developed independently without the help of viruses or so on like uh, nucleus and and things like this uh, all right. So there are there are basically two questions in, in your question. The first uh, that relates to do they have viruses that may have uh, somehow uh, helped them evolve some uh, structures like the pepins or we, we don't know anything about uh, viruses that would be um, infecting those bacteria. We have not looked at that. We we, we don't know. Um, anything about viruses uh, uh, that would be um, associated with these bacteria, so that I don't know. Uh, however, 
the 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 other part of the question, which is, does these these finding uh, changes does it change anything in terms of the origin of uh, the eukaryotic cell and the origin of the nucleus? And the answer. Thanks for asking this question. That's a very important points to clarify. So the answer is very clearly no, it doesn't change anything because what we, uh, so if you go back to, to the tree of life, uh, if you go back to the slide number two, uh, and you you see the, the eukaryotes that are indeed uh, branching uh, into the archaea uh, uh, domain, they, are they have evolved from Asgard archaea apparently, uh, there, the origin of eukaryotes is completely distinct from uh, Thiomargarida uh, magnifica. Thiomargarida is a bacterium. It's from the the group uh, in in yellow here at the top of the tree. Uh, it's a gamma protobacteria. So they are completely unrelated to uh, to eukaryotes. If you if you want to think about uh, uh, how how come that they they have these these uh, structures that uh, that contain the DNA in a, in a membrane-bound uh, structures that somehow functionally you you it's tempting to to think about that as a as an analogy to the nucleus in eukaryotes, but it, it's a, it's really a different type of structures. It also contains the ribosomes, uh, while the nucleus um, uh, compartmentalize um, the transcription from the traduction uh, that happens. Um, in the cytoplasm of the eukaryotic cell. So here, both transcription and traductions happens within the pepin. So there are very different structures. Uh, but the fact that the DNA is protected in a structure with a membrane is, uh, I, I'll give you that, is some, somehow analog, analogous to the nucleus. Uh, but if, uh, if anything, this is convergent evolution uh, and, and, not, um, and not, uh, it's not related to the Asgard archaea that evolved into the eukaryotic cell. Thank you. Uh, Anthony had the questions from early on from the talk. So welcome to the stage, Anthony. And Please ask your question. Can you hear us, Anthony, to unmute? Uh, it's all the way on the bottom right hand. There's a little microphone symbol. So if you press that, you can, you can speak with us. I have a quick question yes, if he's not able to. Yeah. This this is kind of a joke, but do we need to change the name of microbiology departments? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that that's an interesting uh, thing, right? Like it's 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 uh, when I uh, when I'm asked to describe myself when I, uh, I I've been talking to you know press or stuff after the the publication, uh, they ask me if I'm a microbiologist. Uh, if we're still microbiologists, when when what we are studying is actually not microscopic, so. <laughs> Yeah, we might have to uh, come up with a new names for uh, giant microbe microbiologist. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know whether maybe this is. Do you think could, this could be the tip of the iceberg? Maybe we're, we just haven't been looking for them enough. So maybe not the tip of the iceberg. That that would uh, I wouldn't go that far. But uh, but definitely there is uh, there is this idea now that. Um, uh, I mean, giant microbe were known before, right? I, I have not acknowledged that enough in in my uh, speech before, but there there were uh, some giant bacteria uh, that were known. Some of them were uh, visible uh, to the naked eye, 
already. Uh, they were they were uh, about 50 times smaller than this one. So we we are we are you know um, pushing again the boundary uh, a little bit further. But uh, but the question um, whether or not there are other giant microbes that are awaiting discovery. Yeah, I, th I think probably because uh, the way microbiologists sample uh, bacteria uh, is just not adapted to you know, finding these giant microbes, like most um, marine biology, uh, microbial uh, um, ecology sciences, they would they would go and collect uh, water and, and filter, uh, exclude large things because they don't want the eukaryotic uh, contaminants in their samples. And then they would filter uh, microscopic cells uh, on, on a 0.2 micrometer filter and they would sequence the DNA. So if you if you sample bacteria like this, you will miss all the giant microbes. So now how many giant microbes uh, are out there that we have not recognized uh, that, uh, that we don't know? But I, I hope that this paper will encourage you know, other groups to look for other giant microbes. That would be really interesting to to see uh, other uh, species found uh, in, in various environments. Yeah, that's really cool. You don't find what you don't look for. <laughs> exactly. I think Anthony is ready now for his question. Go ahead. Okay, uh, maybe not. Maybe I'm, I misunderstood in the chat. Um, Dr. Shah, um, uh, Einer, um, please, Frank, Gilbert, yes. please ask your question. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your research with us. My question is, is there any phosphate accumulation that you found? Uh, also, is there any differences between the pH of the local and, I mean, cytosol? Um, you can answer this one and I will go forward for the next one. I didn't quite uh, hear, uh, understand the question. Did I'm just going to repeat to make sure. Did you ask, uh, is there any difference in terms of pH between the content of the central vacuole and yes, the cytosol? that was one of them. And another one was the phosphate accumulation. Is there any phosphate accumulation that you found? Okay, so phosphate uh, accumulation, I don't know. We we have not investigated the phosphate metabolism. I know that some, uh, I think there is um, uh, some. There are some papers about phosphate granules in other thermogator species. Um, we have not looked at that, and uh, and uh, the the very obvious um uh granules that were present in the cytosol of thiomogrita magnifica were sulfur granules so that that uh, has been characterized by uh, olivier's lab uh, in guadeloupe they used um, electron microscopy coupled with elemental analysis to um, to show that uh, these large uh, spherical granules in the cytoplasm were sulfur elemental sulfur granules uh, I don't know about phosphate accumulation. We have not looked we at got, that. Yeah. Jean-Marie, yeah, we got no signal for phosphate. Phosphorus. Okay, so so yeah. so so I, so there might not be phosphate granules. Yeah, we don't have evidence that they are phosphate granules. We, I guess we can put it this way. And um, and uh, and then concerning the pH of the vacuole, we have not uh, uh, measured uh, the pH with like microsensors or or um, there are some dyes also that allows you to do that. And and there's a, a preprint uh, by another group studying uh, thiomagrada uh, 
um, species, I think, that do such techniques, and they have very interesting uh, images, uh, beautiful images um, uh, about about this. Uh, we have not done that kind of work. Uh, we we may have some. I think Olivier has some preliminary data that the the vacuole contains nitrate, which is uh, um, what has been described for most large sulfur bacteria with central vacuole. Not all of them, though. But uh, so we 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 might be uh, in the same scenario where the vacuole contains nitrate, but this uh, has not been published yet. And no, uh, yeah, because it's and in terms of pH. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, it's just preliminary results about the nitrate. But I have some contact with a French lab, and he's also doing uh, using dye to to measure the concentration of nitrate or phosphate inside the, the big cell like that. So maybe in a few months we will be able to say if we really have nitrate and how much, what is the concentration of nitrate inside the cells, and also about phosphate. I hope so. <laughs> Anyone hear me? Is there any differences between the usage of the protein, I mean, for this species? And for example, in comparison, is the E. coli, if you want to explain, because we have amino acid starvation, and I was just wondering about this species and how uh, the, uh, I mean, the species use the protein as an intracellular amino acid pool. I'm not sure I understand your question. Are you asking? Uh... Yeah, no, I, I don't understand what you're asking exactly. What do you mean by usage of protein? Um, you mentioned you mean about what, the protein, what, right? Uh, I mean, we have... Sorry, what? You mentioned about the protein that you just yes. uh, founded in this species. I was just wondering, the process of the protein, when we're just talking about the protein, uh, they're supposed to be, the in some of the species, similar to this species that you find there is a differences between how they are using the protein as an intracellular amino acid pool. And we have amino acid starvation that is happened. So for example, include the tRNA, it become discharged and there is no charge. And after that, they are just switching the uh, component that they are using. I was just wondering, maybe you just go forward to those details or not. I, yeah, I, I don't think we can answer that your question. We have not looked at that. We uh, so in terms of uh, protein synthesis, the only thing we've done um, is to to uh, visualize where you know to localize protein synthesis inside of the cell with the Bonkat approach. We we have not uh, analyzed the the proteome, so we don't we don't know the nature of the of the protein that has that are um, being produced <clears throat> by. Uh, by these uh, species. And uh, yeah, I, I don't think we can answer your question with the data we have right now. Hello, this is Anthony after many tries. Um, <laughs> finally got my sound working. Um, yeah, thanks for pointing at the, uh, the trade-offs and uh, hypotheses about that earlier. That's really interesting. And um, I was wondering, slightly technically, I was wondering if you think uh, what you think of the idea that you've got these little regions with um, nucleic acids and ribosomes, then you have this other huge volume that doesn't. I was wondering if what you think about the possibility that is could could this big 
space with no ribosomes, no nucleic acids? Could it be sort of an enormous shared periplasm, the place between the two membranes that ordinary bacteria uh, have? Could it be sort of like separate cytoplasms in a shared periplasm? That that is a very good question, and um, and we uh, again we are not going to be able to sorry to disappoint. We, I'm not going to be able to to answer that. We have not settled that. Uh, you know, it's you're basically asking about the, the the membrane topology in these giant cells, right? And and um, it is very different from uh, uh, model bacteria. That is for sure. And uh, what I can tell you is that we are. Currently conducting some uh, uh, additional microscopic investigation. We're going to try to use cryo-electron microscopy. We're going to uh, try to look at also uh, other large sulfur bacteria to understand better the membrane topology. We 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 don't know uh, the answer to your question uh, at the moment. There there are some. Um, structures within the cytoplasm that uh, that are also uh, you know round shaped that that resembles the pepin but they don't have uh, dna or, or ribosomes on um, so yeah we we also have this limitation that so far all the microscopic investigation we conducted was done on fixed material uh, we we don't have these cells growing in the lab, so we relied 100% on on fixed cells for all the microscopy uh, we did. Uh, so that means that we always only have a snapshot, you know, in time of uh, of how the cell is organized and how it is. Right? We don't know uh, how dynamic this is. We don't know. Uh, how the pepins uh, evolve. We don't know how they are formed. We don't know if they if they mature into something else. Uh, so all all of these are um, uh, open questions at the moment, which makes it very exciting. There's a lot more to to understand and to discover about these uh, uh, fascinating giants. Love it. Good luck. Thanks. Um, yeah, we are. The hour is basically up. But if anyone has uh, some last questions, please post them in the chat, or um, you know, unmute yourself, like flash your microphone. Yeah, Einar. Hi. Yeah. Hi, Katarina. Um, hi, Jean-Marie. Uh, hi. Um, so I'm not schooled in this subject, but uh, I had two questions, uh, Dr. Shah, actually, and your conversation with Dr. Shah uh, gave me answers to one of them. But uh, when it comes to the um, energy-driven part of this uh, this bacteria, uh, most likely driven by light. Uh, so this means that driven, are... driven by what? Sorry, what did you say? from light, uh, which means that they are driven by uh, some form of symbiotic relationship with the environment, basically attached to uh, atoms and electrons emitting lights uh, when they change positions and go in and out of the nucleus and whatnot. Uh, do you have any uh, thoughts around this? Thank you. All right. I, I'll try to... Uh, understand what you're asking. I'm not sure I understand. So, you, so first, what I can tell you is that uh, I have not made that very clear, maybe, but uh, these cells 
are uh, they are not photosynthetic they are chemosynthetic organisms they have um, we have um, uh, various evidence that uh, they, their um, metabolism is chemosynthesis they are capable of using the chemical energy that is contained in, in reduced sulfur species uh, to fuel uh, their metabolism and, and fix inorganic carbon so they can they can fix carbon using uh, um, the energy of hydrogen sulfides so whether or not they are driven by light if they have some kind of uh, um, if they are growing towards light to you know to just like plants would do to to position themselves or grow in the right direction uh, we don't know uh, we don't know uh, we don't have any evidence that they can sense light. We have not looked at that either, but uh, yeah. But they are not, uh, what we know for sure is that they are chemosynthetic organisms, not photosynthetic organisms. Ah, thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Yeah, let me check again in the chat if there was another question. Um, oh yeah, um, someone asked if the genomic data is available in a database um, to for people to check out. Yeah, absolutely. Everything uh, is uh, is available. So if you uh, because you shared the the link to the preprint, but uh, uh, it's not in the preprint. However, in the final paper. Uh, if you uh, check the final paper, you will find all the accession numbers. So the raw reads have been deposited to um, SRA, uh, NCBI, and uh, and we also made available the um, the pre-binning libraries uh, assembled uh, 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 genomes and uh, and and also the Thiomargarita uh, metagenome assembled genomes because we. Uh, we we used MDS or I, I mean anyway long story short yes all the data are on IMG uh, and on uh, SRA so the accession numbers are in the supplementary uh, table um, in in the supplementary material of the paper. Great, thank you so much. Oh, Warrior, um, he you joined the stage. Is it okay to ask one more question, Jomai? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, thank you. Okay. For me, it's, uh, yeah, I, I will have uh, maybe three more minutes, then I'm going to have to go. But I have, I have time for one more question. Okay, yes. thank you. Yeah, uh, you, you said that uh, uh, we don't know much about this cell and uh, probably the pictures you have now or whatever you are, I mean, observing is just like dead cells on a microscope, yeah. And uh, I think we have lots of theories on how the cell works, including the ribosome and uh, making, uh, I mean... Uh, proteins from RNA and all that is still a theory. Is it possible that all, all that we know about the cell is wrong? And we have to start? I don't, I, I don't think, no, I don't, I don't think that all we know about cells is wrong. Uh, not at all. I don't think, well, also I, I, I am uh, absolutely sure that we are not just looking at uh, just dead cells. Uh, under a microscope. I mean, I mean, they're dead once we've killed them, but uh, when we collected them, they they are alive, and we know that for sure because we we have. Uh, I mean, Olivier's group uh, is working with the live cells. They they see them producing these terminal buds. They see the terminal buds being released. Uh, we have also the um, the Bonkat experiments. 
that are performed on live cells uh, where we can visualize active protein synthesis uh, in, in the cells uh, in the course of a few hours or overnight incubation. So we, uh, there's no doubt that we are looking, uh, studying live, you know, uh, healthy cells. Um, and uh, and, and so I don't for, think so we just are... For, for example, when we talk about uh, ribosomes, yeah, do, do we have some facts that really we get mRNA coming from the nucleus and then goes out to the ribosome to create a protein? Is that being proved or is it just a theory? In, uh, in you, uh, you, you're asking in general in biology, like so that's a general question no, you're not asking in me. General, it's, uh, I'm talking about uh, right now, they are telling us that uh, the ribosome creates, I mean, proteins from RNA which is copied from the DNA in the, in the nucleus. Did you see yes. that yourself? So, uh, I mean, indirectly, yes, we, so with the, the difference that we don't have a nucleus here, we have, uh, we have uh, a structure that we call pepins that is not a nucleus. We, we have the DNA inside of the pepins that we can directly visualize with, uh, with DNA uh, dye. We have the ribosomes inside of that same structure, which we can also directly see with, with two different techniques. We can label them with uh, fish. We can also recognize the, the ribosome under the transmission electron microscope so but we know that them, the but between, no but between them you said we have the nucleus and we have the ribosome um but hold I'm, on. I'm sorry but hold our guest speaker let, has to go and you're um you're asking questions that are very but i don't know that are kind of you know solved questions <laughs> i'm sorry but uh we don't have too much time and also, if you need some updates on basic biology, um, like um, we can we can give you book recommendations and review recommendations. Read out, reach out to me, and I can recommend you uh, literature to read. Um, thank you so much, Jean Marie and Olivier, um, for giving this amazing presentation and for this uh, really fantastic work that you shared with us. Uh, I hope you get all the funding to um, update, like to research this bacteria more. Thank you, uh, thank you so much. It's so interesting. <laughs> it's so interesting to me, and um, and I think it's interesting in general. So, um, so we wish you all the luck, and maybe one day you come back and give us some updates about uh, this project or other projects you're doing. Thank you. Sure, it will be our pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting us and uh, yeah, for the very nice uh, exchange and opportunity. Thanks. Bye. Thank, Thank you. you so Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Um, and thank you everyone for coming and asking questions, being here, um, being interested in research and science. And um, uh, if you like questions like, uh, discussions like these, um, follow the club uh, we will have uh, more um, events like this uh, our next event is tomorrow uh, with dr. Liu um, who will be talking about um, new uh, genetic research on um, who are actually the world's earliest seafarers I don't know if you know I'm Portuguese I'm really curious about that it's for sure not Portuguese so <laughs> just <laughs> it won't be Portuguese well, so. Chinese. <laughs> no, or Easter Island maybe I don't know we'll learn from her um, we'll see and um, and then on Thursday we will have Dr. Gu at 2 p.m. EST 
artificial microtubules um, to transport cargoes. He will give us really interesting presentation about this new type of technology, which I think will be very useful in modern medicine and technology. And then on Friday, we'll have Dr. Pshishya um, talking about uh, new quantum um, research results and putting that into context with uh, quantum consciousness theories like Penrose and how he is basically collapsing with his uh, lab results those theories. Um, sorry, people, but please come and discuss with us. And uh, yeah, I'm uh, looking forward to the rest of the week with everyone. I hope to hear you all back soon. Okay, I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you.